You are listening to Shining Star Community Church, English Ministries Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. So this past week, we've heard about Abraham offering Isaac up to the Lord, trusting that God would provide. He is called what? Jehovah. Very good. We've also heard in the weeks before how Abraham demonstrated great faith and how he was called a friend of God. So we've heard all these things that matter to Abraham, namely his son Isaac, who was his and Sarah's treasure and most prized possession, if you want to call it that. But today, we're going to get into something else. Today, we're going to see what matters to God. Okay, so I got a couple points to make, but you guys know me. My points have points. My first point is this. Marriage must honor God's covenant. Marriage must honor God's covenant. Say amen. amen. <laughs> if you want to, say amen. Okay, now in Scripture, there are some truths that I believe the Bible <clears throat> may subtly suggest. Okay, there are other truths that it openly teaches. But there are other truths in Scripture that essentially are shouting right into our faces. Know this. And this is one of them. Marriage must honor God's covenant. Now, in the story, Abraham sends a servant to find a wife for his son, Isaac. Good old daddy. Going out, sending a servant to find his son a suitable mate. A lifetime mate. You know the good old days when we trusted our parents to pick out our, our spouses, right? You know, there was a comedian who said, I would never let my mom pick out my wife. I don't even let her pick out my outfit. So in this story, the servant is sent to find a wife for Isaac. Next week, we'll see how it all works out. But today, I think it will be wise for us to look into the driving force that is behind Abraham's search. So under this point, I want us to look at a few stipulations, a conditions, three of them actually, that Abraham gives his servant because it's through these stipulations that we learn that marriage is not some emotional, falling-in-love type of social construct, but it's really a greater purpose that fulfills God's people to honor God's, that allows God's people to honor God's covenant. You see? You can fall in love, but you can also what? Fall out of love. Marriage is not emotionally based. There are emotions tied to it, absolutely, and emotions are good, too. But marriage itself is not based and founded on emotions. So the first stipulation is this. Don't marry a Canaanite woman. Turn to your neighbor and say, don't marry a Canaanite person. Be to know that they don't exist. Uh, are there any more Canaanite people? No, you'll be happy to know that they don't exist. Okay, they don't exist, not anymore at least. Canines don't exist today, so it looks like you're good to go. Not really. If you look at verse 3, it says, put your hand under my thigh. By the way, that is today when you, make a, when you swear, when you promise, when you make an allegiance, what do you do? You put your hand on your chest or you put your right hand up or you put it on the Bible. Right back then, they actually would place it upon the loins. If you know what that is, I'm not going to explain what that is. And essentially, that's to say this is how... This is how much I'm swearing, okay? So put your hand under my thigh that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and 
God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So hear me out, folks. Marrying a Canaanite woman would have actually been good politics. Like it would make logical sense to marry a Canaanite person. We know especially back then, marriages weren't always just about, hey, do you love him? Do you love her? Fine, let's go ahead and get married and have a bunch of kids and stuff like that. Marriages back then were all about unifying. Unifying clans is all about forming political ties and alliances. They served as a treaty to bring peace among warring tribes, families, nations, so on and so forth. It just, and so marrying a Canaanite just made sense. No biggie. In fact, Abraham, he was a nomad, right? He didn't have any claim to any land, and yet he was also very wealthy. Imagine the kind of foothold he would have in this land if he if he had Isaac marrying to one of the prominent ruling families, maybe Abimelech's daughter. Think of all the power, the influence, the ties that they would have. Marrying to this family, marrying into this type of nation, you're thinking, what's the big deal? Shouldn't be a big deal. The big deal was that Abraham knew the practices of the Canaanites. He knew how they were. They were wicked. They were sinful. The way, they, the way they lived their lives were completely contrary to the way God wanted people to live their lives. The Canaanites, they lived rebelliously. They lived worshiping idols. They lived without any fear of the God of Abraham. They were promiscuous. They were fornicators. They did temple idolatry and temple fornication. They killed infants and their own children in the name of sacrifice and worship to their idols. That's what the Canaanites were doing. And before we start thinking of how abominable these wicked Canaanites were, let's bring it back to us in, in this century. Don't people today only live for themselves too? Sexual promiscuity is now an expected thing. To be a virgin is now considered foreign and weird, is it not? It's no longer about your community, but now it's about individualism. How can I get ahead at the expense of others? I don't care if I have to step on their toes or even step on their heads. Have you guys ever seen reality TV? I think it's aptly named. It's called reality TV because it actually reveals the reality of our lives. Sure, we may not have the luxurious lifestyle and drama of the Kardashians, but the millions of viewers who tune in and each day, deep down inside, they want it too. We want that kind of wealth. We want that kind of fame. We want that kind of attention and dramatic adventure in our lives that gives us a sense of worth, a sense of significance, that we're on the map somehow, where it's all about me, 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 me. Not only that, we're in a time in our lives where we'd rather save a dog's life than save a growing human inside a mother's belly. In our wickedness, because the reality of sin is sometimes too real, we have massaged our wickedness by relabeling anti-consequence as pro-choice. We've redirected people's focus from the murdering of innocent babies in utero to saying that, no, it's just about her body. It's about her right. The Canaanites, they live their lives completely devoid of God. We also live our lives completely devoid of God. We know people who live lives completely devoid of God. And yet because for some reason we think they're nice, because they have good income, maybe because they're really funny. There's some sort of compatibility. We've got a lot of common ground. We're willing to overlook the fact that they are, in fact, enemies of God. That they're enemies of God, living in worship of complete idolatry and rebellion against the very God that you love and worship. 
So because it may make sense on paper, maybe because it seems rational in your mind, maybe because there's butterflies in your stomach when you meet him or when you meet her, it's all worth somehow throwing God and what he wants by the wayside so we can satisfy our own insecurities or ambitions, our own flesh, indulgences, whatever you want to call it. That's why Abraham told his servant not to get a Canaanite wife for his son because marriage, get this, marriage should not be a mission field. You hear me? Marriage should not be a mission field. Marriage is a partnership that already endeavors to honor God. You hear me? Marriage is not a mission field. That's why Abraham told him not to get a Canaanite wife. But not only that, there's a second stipulation. It was, do not return Isaac to the ancient homeland. Do not return Isaac to the ancient homeland. You see the stipulation in verses 5 6. I'm going to read. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. Then Abraham repeats it again in verse 8. Only you must not take my son back there. You see, Abraham, he isn't just interested in getting Isaac a wife from his own kind of people. That's not it. Abraham is looking, okay, get this, for a woman who will pursue God's covenant promises with Isaac. Does that make sense? Not just a good girl from his hometown, but he's looking for a good girl who will join in this walk with Isaac. In other words, someone who will come and live out her life in the land of promise, trusting the God who made a covenant with him, with Isaac. You see, it's not enough that she came from the same region or that she's come from the same family ties as Abraham. I mean, what if, as the servant asked, what if I find the perfect wife, Abraham? Okay, what if I find the perfect wife, but she isn't willing to come? She's not willing to move. Then Abraham said, then she's not the perfect wife for Isaac. You see, the person you marry may fit the bill in every way. She's a believer. She may love God, I hope. She's pretty. She's funny. She's smart. All that good stuff. Or for ladies, turn around. He is a believer, right, so on and so forth. But if she does not embrace or also possess the same vision, values, and principles that you have for God's kingdom and the things that God has set in your heart, then she's not the one. Because marriage is not about how will she or how will he satisfy my expectations or what I want from life. No, marriage is about how can we serve God. How can we serve God's covenant? How can we partner together and work together to serve his kingdom, to serve his church, his people, and glorify his name? If God is calling you to the mission field, without a shadow of a doubt, not just on short-term missions, but he is calling you to go and die there, then don't marry someone whose vision is to stay only in comfort and luxury. If God's calling you to embrace people and open your home and practice hospitality, then maybe the guy or girl who hates being around people or can't stand opening their homes up isn't the right person. If God is calling you to serve and grow deeper into the church membership and community, which he is, but he or she thinks that the person you're with thinks it's an option, 
that church is an option, that church is fine for holidays, that to be a weekend Christian is acceptable, more than fine perhaps, then don't be with that person. Ultimately, will he or she not pull or push you closer to God, but here's the thing. You don't want just someone who will push and encourage you. You want someone who will walk with you to God, who will walk with you side by side towards the covenant of God. That's what we should be looking for. If he or she is great, but they're not willing to walk towards the things of God with you, then maybe they're not the right person. The servant might be able to pick the perfect wife, but if she's not willing to walk this line of faith with Isaac by coming to him, then she's not the one. So when Abraham said, don't take my son back there, he's saying, hey, this is God's plan for him. Don't let him compromise and settle God's amazing plans just to get married to someone who seems like the right fit. Don't compromise your commitment to following Christ. Don't compromise your vision that God has given you. Third stipulation is this. God can provide. Does this sound familiar? Truly, this has been, I think, Abraham's source of strength, that God provides. So what does the servant do if he can't pick a neighboring Canaanite woman and no one from the ancient homeland will come back with him and he can't take Isaac back there? Then what? Well, in that case, Abraham, he said, I release you. He releases his servant from his vow, meaning if God closes all the doors, then we'll just have to wait some more. Does that make sense? If God closes all the doors, then you'll have to wait some more because we know that God will provide. And you see here in verse 7, The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, To your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So Abraham had a really, really big reason to believe that God would provide. God had promised to give the land to Abraham's offspring. That means there must be a wife for Isaac. And if worse comes down to it, he'll just wait on God. He'll just wait on God some more because God will provide. Folks, hear me out. The principle of our marriages honoring God's covenant is mentioned everywhere in Scripture. It's mentioned everywhere in Scripture, in the Bible, everywhere in the Bible that God, He commands us to not marry a non-believer. Deuteronomy 7 says, God talks about not intermarrying with those who whose land they'll be entering into, Canaanites. In 1 Kings chapter 11, Solomon, as wise as he was, wasn't so wise because he ignored God's command. And as we read, he grew old and his pagan wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God. In Ezra chapter 9, after people had returned after 70 years of exile in Babylon, Ezra, he hears of something disturbing. He hears that the people of God had begun to mix their holy race with people around them. And so, they, so he ripped his tunic, he ripped off his cloak, he tore out his hair in agony. But why was he so distraught? Why was he so distraught? Because it was on the account, get this, of the violation of the sacredness of, among God's people that the judgment of the flood had come. Did you know that? Remember, remember when the godly sons of Seth intermarried with what? The ungodly sons of Cain? Do you remember that? It was through this violation 
of intermarriage, of being a believer with a non-believer that caused the downfall of Solomon and which caused the division of the United Kingdom of Israel. It was through this violation that the judgment of Israel, get this, sent into exile in Babylon had come. And now the reason why Ezra is screaming is because God's people were doing it again and again and again. He's saying, will you never learn? It's not just God's preference that you marry someone of your sin. He's saying, this is going to be a spiritual downfall. It will tear your family apart. It will tear your culture apart. It will tear the culture of God apart. You see, don't do it, he says. You see, it's not just about marriage, people. It's about God's holiness. It's not just about your wife taking on your name. It's about both of you taking on the name of God. Marriage is not about a public declaration of your love for one another. Marriage is about the declaration of Jesus' marriage with his bride, the church. The New Testament makes it even more clear. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 talks about not attaching yourself to an unbeliever or, yeah, to an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 talks about whoever you marry must belong to the Lord. To the unmarried folks of our church, whoever you are, I know who you are. Listen to the word of God today. God has designed the marriage covenant to mirror his covenant with his people. Therefore, we are only allowed to marry in the Lord, which means only marry another believer and only marry someone who shares our commitment to follow Jesus. Period. Doesn't have to be that complicated. And for some reason, there are a lot of Christians out there I believe that God has created other stipulations. I've heard from an esteemed Christian leader in my life that um, it, was, it was quite discouraging to hear this. He said that you had to marry within your own race. I said, wow, okay. The Bible is totally unconcerned about that. That's wrong. Some people have said that it's, that it's wrong to do that. Some Christians, and, I've, and there's no biblical support for that. And yet Christians, some Christians believe that. There's nothing in Scripture that forbids an Asian person from marrying a white person or a white person marrying a black person. Some people also believe that you shouldn't marry someone outside of your nationality. Marry some of your nationalistic values. All American values. No, no, let's all have Christian values. Let's all have biblical values. Christ-centered values. Some, of you, some people have said that you need to marry someone in their class, in their social and economic Background, again, that's something the Bible would speak against. The person you are marrying or want to marry, are they a Christian? And are they committed following after Christ? I've heard this too many times. Well, they go to church. Well, so did Hitler. I'm talking about, is there evidence of a life that is transformed? Stop the whole she or he goes to church thing. I've heard it so many times I'm about to break this pulpit. It's getting old and just like the, old, the past, re, not recently, but the past Keith Green said, Christian musician, he said going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger anymore than going to church makes you a Christian. So what are we to do then? This is my second and last point. Pursue godly marriages. Pursue godly marriage. Now, 
it's one thing for us to want this for ourselves and for our children. I know many of us have young children. And so the thought of marriage for them seems a bit far off. I can't think about my little daughter getting married. We spoke with good friends of ours from Philadelphia yesterday, and she, she's uh, best friends with Grace, and they have a, they have a son who's um, around, maybe was a little bit younger than Ada, but Grace also, also always calls him, hello, my future son-in-law. I'm just like, mm. <laughs> not yet, wife. I love that family, though. I wouldn't mind. But the reality, I'm sure, look, we'd all love for our children to marry a godly, Christ-centered man or a woman one day. And we can go ahead and try to remind them of that fact each and every day. Marry a believer. Marry someone who's committed to Christ. Marry someone who loves the church. Marry someone who lives sacrificially, who's servant-hearted, so on and so forth, and listing out all these spiritual godly attributes and characteristics that we would love for them to have and for the future spouses to have. But here's the reality. The thing is, words are cheap. When we say, do this, be this. And I believe Abraham knew that words were cheap too, so he put his money where his mouth is. And how do we see that? Isaac had seen firsthand of his father's allegiance to God, did he not? It wasn't Abraham just saying, hey, Isaac, be godly. Pursue godliness. Live righteously. Isaac had seen firsthand of his father's allegiance to God when he was willing to sacrifice his own son to obey God. Isaac also knew that God came before even his most precious relationships. Isaac, the son, saw with his own eyes heard with his own ears, and experienced with his own life the reality that God came first to his father. And I think that's the best lesson we can ever give our children. And it's really the best lesson we can start practicing right now, regardless if you have kids or not. Because do you know that your children learn by watching your lifestyle? I think we all know that. So they know if God is absolutely first in your relationships. They will know if God is absolutely first in your life. They know if God is first even before mom or dad is, or their siblings are first in their lives. Because if Christ is not first in all your relationships, if Jesus is not the focus of your entire life, your direction, your ambition, everything in your life, then the day that you tell your kids how important God is to them, they will roll their eyes at you and ignore every word you say. Because they knew growing up that God was never first in your life. Why should he be first in mine? God, Jesus never took precedence over your most precious relationships. Why should he be first in mine? So what's the best thing we can do right now? Now don't try to start faking and manufacturing holy moments. In your, it's like, children, look, I am carrying the Bible to the bathroom. <laughs> Oh, my father's holy. You know, don't start changing your phone, you know, the pages to all the Bibles on the front page and then all the other stuff to a second. Don't try to manufacture and try to falsify these things and try to impress them. No. Instead, here it is, okay? Listen to me. Start with this. Day by day, walk with God. That's it. Day by day. Start today. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not when you have this little mini revival of yours. Start today. Walk with God. Make him Lord of your life. Make worship and make praise a part of your vocabulary throughout the day. 
instead of hearing blasphemous, negative pejorative things throughout the day, maybe because work was hard or relations are difficult or you see the economy and you see your money slowly going down, you have something to complain about, talking about, starts talking about the wonders of God at church. Start talking about the glory of Christ when you're with your family. When you're driving and someone cuts you off, start thinking about the grace of God, how he has protected you instead of how what you think of that guy. Start with the day-by-days, people. The quiet times. Do your quiet time and meditate on it. And that inward transformation will slowly but surely become more outwardly evident. So much so that your children will see the transformation and see the godliness in your life and how you have placed Christ first and foremost and they too will want that one day. So showing our kids that Jesus comes first will help our future conversation with them. But it's also about where your resources are being invested in too. Abraham was a wealthy guy. And he made a big commitment to find his son and wife. It was a big venture. He had committed his most senior servant for a long period of time to go back home, which was about 500 miles away, to go on camelback. Then he sent 10 camels, actually a whole caravan filled with other servants as well. Then he committed his wealth, we'll see by next week, by giving her, the, his future wife, a nose gold ring and also a bracelet for Rebecca and even more gold and silver for the family of the wife. What am I getting at? This is what I'm asking. To what extent is your wealth and your influence committed into shaping your child's faith? How much are you willing to invest in your children's faith? So here's my challenge to you parents and to myself as well. How much is a godly marriage for your son or daughter worth to you? If it's worth everything, then we need to start investing in their spiritual formation right now. Does that make sense? We need to start investing in their spiritual formation right now. We need to start investing in Sunday school. Don't say, oh, they'll just go to worship. Sunday school. Bible study, we need to invest in volunteering. We need to make sure that VBS, Vacation Bible School, is better than any public school orchestra or theater production. You get that? We need to make sure that children who can't afford to attend youth retreats would receive financial support, maybe even from your very own pockets. This also means investing their spiritual growth by sending our children to VBS, to retreats, to missions, weekly church classes, discipleship programs, and Sunday service. Because those things, your spiritual formation of the children, are far more important than any school game or once-a-year concert or long-awaited fishing trip or what have you. Things that will inevitably conflict. We need to invest more into the discipleship of our children by here. Get this. This is for you guys now. By investing into the discipleship of us as adults. You must grow spiritually as well. How do we do that? Brothers, sisters, friends. That means you, get, you need to get more plugged into life groups. Into our discipleship classes that we offer here. This also means perhaps, and I've heard people talk about this too, putting your kids into Christian private schools. If that's something that you believe has been said in your heart, it may be expensive, but maybe that's something that you'll want to invest in. When it comes to marriage, 
This is the word of the Lord. We must not be silent. We must not be tongue-tied or timid about what God expects from us and each other. Marrying an unbeliever is something many unbelievers don't understand. You know that? I've heard that. I've heard an unbelieving spouse, husband, say, what's the big hoopla? If I love her and I'm committed to her, what's the big deal? Isn't that enough? Why can't we all just coexist? I hate that bumper sticker. Here's the thing about God. You will either draw nearer to him or further away. As Christians, our lives will grow increasingly in sync with God and his ways. That means living a more robust spiritual life and practice. But for the unbeliever, they won't understand the point of Bible study. They won't understand the point of prayer or the point of mission trips or the point of hospitality or keeping your lives open 24-7 for your fellow brother, sister in Christ. They won't understand the point of church membership or serving to the point where you give and you give sacrificially, unconditionally, even at the expense of your reputation, your pride, your resources, your treasure, your everything. The unbeliever does not and cannot get that. So as you increasingly draw closer to Christ, they will increasingly become more marginalized in your life. Not only that, when you marry a believer, when you marry a believer, you can both grow in Christ together and you can grow as a couple. When each spouse is a believer, then the atoning work of Jesus it colors every aspect of their relationship and it propels them towards a godlier and Christ-exemplifying life. But when you are tied to an unbeliever, you can grow as a couple, but your growth in Christ will be strangled. Either way, there will be a compromise and I don't think that's the type of marriage that we'd want. So what are the truths that have been shouted at us today? Marriage must first honor God, first and foremost. We must also diligently and faithfully and exclusively pursue godly marriages for our sake, the sake of our children, and the sake of God's glorious covenant. Hear me out. If you are dating an unbeliever, God says, get out of it right now. Get out of it right now. I don't think he's being ambiguous here. If you are today dating, I'm talking to you. If you are dating an unbeliever, get out of it right now. God says, what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship does light have with darkness? It's oil and water. And don't you dare think that God has called you to be the sole speaker of salvation and truth to your boyfriend or girlfriend and that if you were to break up with them, it would tailspin them out of control. No, their salvation has nothing to do with you. Your desire to evangelize to them does not require intimacy with them. Does that make sense? Your desire to make Christ known in their lives, if that is your singular purpose and focus, it does not require intimacy. Does God say in the Bible, the Great Commission is also the great dating? Obviously not. So listen to the word of God carefully. Do not yoke yourself Tie yourself. Marry an unbeliever. Do not marry hoping they'll change. Oh, haven't we thought that? Oh, he'll change. She'll change. It is, if it's hard for people to change generic bad habits going to marriage, what on earth are we thinking that salvation will just come along if we say, I do? For those of you who are married, 
to an unbeliever. Or for those who know fellow believers who are married to an unbeliever, this is, what a, this is what the Word of God says, you will be sanctified. That means there will be an even more difficult road ahead of you. But before any relationship, before any treasure, before anything or anyone in your life, God says, put your hope, put your trust and faith in God's transforming power. He may change their hearts. He may bring them to salvation. He could transform them. He possibly could fill them with the Holy Spirit. He might be their God so that they might be his people. But here is God's promise for you. In all this, God will change your heart. He will lead you into sanctification. He will continue to transform you. He will fill you with the Holy Spirit. He will be your God and you will be his people. An unbelieving spouse, hear me out, cannot be won over to Christ by you. Does that make sense? An unbelieving spouse cannot be won over to Christ by you. For through his life, death, and resurrection, it is only Christ who wins us over himself. Rely on God's grace to draw near to God as you walk down the path. It will be a difficult road ahead, but here's the Lord's promise. It will not be lonely because Jesus is with you and he is more satisfying than any Christian or not we marry. Cling to Christ on this long path that we're on. Cling to the grace of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. At this moment, we'll take some time just to pray, to consider the words of the Lord that have been spoken to us, the sermon. And as you pray, meditate. Check your hearts. God, how am I honoring you in my marriage? If I'm not, Lord, help me to honor you. And if I don't know what it means to live a life that is holy and pleasing, God, teach me then what it means to be holy and pleasing. Help me to immerse myself into your word that I may know your truth, that I may understand your ways, that I may, that I may walk in obedience. Maybe you are married to a believer. Praise the Lord. But now the question is, how can you pursue a godly marriage together with one another? These are questions that you have to ask. Maybe this is something, this is the time right now where God is trying to speak to you and really reveal the things that you have placed before you and your marriage that have created obstructions things that you need to surrender for the sake of your pride or whatever you, the issue might be. Just let it go. This journey that you're on with your spouse is not a separate journey. It is a journey with them. Lay before the Lord. Maybe right now you're dating an unbeliever. Lord says be careful do you see what's happening don't tie yourself in the unbeliever do not yoke yourself in the unbeliever there's the spiritual ramifications though we may not see it right now are there and it'll destroy you 
And it's not going to just destroy you in your present time. It'll destroy your children and your children's children. You see, it just... The risk is so great. Don't make your relationship a mission field. So let's take a moment and pray. And then uh, after we pray, we'll go into our time of communion, okay? Let's take a moment. Now let's enter into a time of prayer as we prepare for the communion, the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is one of self-examination for the Christian. It is not something you want to lightly partake in like you're eating a normal meal, but this is the Lord's Supper. You want to be sober-minded. You want to be prayerful. You want to be faithful. You want to make sure that you are right with the Lord. God wants you to judge yourself. To judge yourself. To evaluate where you're at with Him. Don't partake in this without truly examining yourself. And if you are obeying or disobeying God's word, don't harbor sin and think that God will overlook it. This is for the Christian, the one who professes, and the one who remembers the blood shed of Jesus Christ that was shed to forgive you and your sins. When you are ready, after you have prayed, after you have confessed and repented, please join us to the sides and partake in the Lord's Supper with us. Let's pray. I read, For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we center this entire worship around that memory. And we call everyone to mind that Jesus, your body was broken on our behalf. And this fruit of the vine, Lord, calls us to mind that it was the shed blood for the new covenant. We thank you, God, for your desire to send your son, Jesus, to die on our behalf. Even when it doesn't make any sense for us because we're enemies. And yet in your great love, you reconciled us through the death of your son. Not only that, Lord, you have saved us by his life. But Lord, we do pray with godly sorrow that it was our sins that led to this great sacrifice. Sins, Lord, that we even commit today. But Lord, right now we want to acknowledge the fact of this fellowship as we partake together that we are the very body that Christ died for. We thank you, Lord, that you are loving and faithful Savior. And so we simply desire to partake this in a way that's, in a manner that's worthy of your great sacrifice. We thank you 
Jesus, and we love you. Whether we are with unbelieving spouses or not, maybe even as we're single and we're looking for a spouse, our truest and greatest contentment and satisfaction is not found in marriage in an earthly or worldly sense, but is only found when we are in union with you, Jesus. So may we find you And we thank you, Lord, that you're walking with us. We love you. We glorify you. We honor you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please join me.